Well, good morning. I just feel like I need binoculars this morning. But, uh, felt a little bit like the Exodus when the children went out, didn't it? But uh, there we go. Well, it is uh, great to see you. Keep your Bibles open at Genesis 8 and 9. Uh, the world-renowned philosopher that is uh, Willy Wonka, you heard it right, uh, the world-renowned ph- philosopher Willy Wonka once sang of a world of pure imagination. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. His point was that paradise only existed in a world of pure imagination, and yet we all long for it. But this world is not it. If you remember back in the mists of time in 1997, uh, the Labour Party won the general election with the slogan, things can only get better. Do you remember that? Uh, Apparently, Boris Johnson wanted to use the same slogan uh, in last year's general election until it was pointed out to him Labour had already used it. And it was hardly a ringing endorsement when his party had been in government for a decade. But the reason he wanted to use it was because it was a truly aspirational slogan. There is no no political inference to be gained from the fact that I've mentioned Willy Wonka and Boris Johnson in the same sentence. (laughs) Don't read anything into that. It was an effective slogan. It was aspirational because we all long for something better than the reality of the world in which we live. We see it in our culture all around us, whether it is green politics that longs for a world without carbon emissions or the Me Too movement that longs for a world without sexual oppression. Everybody is longing, striving for something better. Deep down, everybody is aware that the present world is broken. But the answer will not be found in environmental solutions or political slogans or social media movements. Those kind of solutions are like putting a a sticking plaster on a gunshot wound. In the New Testament, Romans 8 tells us that the whole of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Just like a a woman in labor cries out in pain, longing for the moment the agony will be over and she will hold a newborn life in her arms. So this creation, this whole world is longing, crying out in agony, waiting for the moment the pain will be over and a new world will be born. And it is that world that is the answer to our longing. It is only in that world, the world to come, that all that is broken in this world will finally be put right. And it is that coming world to which we're pointed in our passage this morning in Genesis chapters 8 and 9. Now, over the last two weeks, we've been pointed to Jesus Christ, the one who defeated death by his own death and resurrection, the one who rescues from the coming judgment. And this morning, we see how the same Jesus Christ is the one who gives life in the world to come. And this concluding section of the account of Noah and the flood points us to the reality that there is a new world coming. And it is Jesus alone who offers the chance for us to live eternally in that new world. 
For those who trust in him, he, he is, as we, we thought last week, the ark in whom we are, are hidden, just as Noah and his family were, uh, were protected, kept safe, hidden inside the ark. Jesus is our ark. He is the one who faced the storm of God's judgment for us. And if we have trusted in him, we are hidden in him. And just as Noah stepped out of the ark after the storm into a new world, so those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will step foot into the new creation that is on its way. That is God's promise to you in Christ the life giver. There is a new world coming. So number one, endure expectantly. That is what we see in chapter 8. There is a new world coming. So endure expectantly. I don't know about you, I'm not the most patient of people. Uh, My wife, I'm sure, would take great delight in regaling you with stories of my impatience in traffic jams or in restaurants when our meal is taking a long while to come. Uh, I think, in general, we are just an increasingly impatient lot. I don't think it's just me. How many of us get frustrated when the Wi-Fi signal cuts out and we sit there impatiently clicking it until it comes back on? Because life comes to an end if there's no internet for 10 minutes. Or we get frustrated when the things we ordered on Amazon Prime don't come the next day, as they should do. The British reputation for queuing patiently will quickly be eroded because we're losing the ability to wait for anything. We have a desire for instant gratification. But the Christian life is not like that. It is those who wait upon the Lord who will renew their strength, the Bible tells us. The New Testament is full of waiting, patience, endurance. And that was certainly Noah's experience. Now, the whole account of Noah and the flood hinges on chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. That is the, the center point of the entire story. Now, that word remember doesn't imply that God was forgetful beforehand. In fact, it means quite the opposite. It means Noah was always on God's mind. And now he takes action to save. He sets in motion his deliverance. But not straight away. It had rained, remember, for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, And then, notice back in uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 24, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So after 40 days rain, there was 150 days where the floodwaters stayed uh, over the earth. And then in chapter 8, verse 3, the waters receded steadily for another 150 days. This is a full year that Noah was on the ark. Now this this was a big old boat, remember? Uh, And yet when you consider the sheer number of animals that were on board, not to mention the, the eight humans as well, I think it would have been pretty crowded. Can you imagine Noah's impatience when finally it stopped raining? Why aren't the waters going down yet, Lord? He he had to wait six months for that to happen. And then once it did begin to happen, he had to wait another six months for the land to be dry enough for them to get off off the boat. Noah and his family were stranded on the ark in pretty restrictive conditions. There have been a few cruise ships Uh, quarantined over these last few weeks, haven't they, with the the virus. 
And people have found it tough being on board a cruise ship for a few weeks in isolation. Can you imagine being on board the ark for a whole year? Surrounded by smelly, noisy animals. Stuck in close confinement with family members. How easy would that have been? Noah's son's wives are the ones I feel sorry for, stuck on board with their mother-in-law. But they had to wait. They had to endure expectantly. They believed God was going to deliver them into a renewed world. But first, they had to endure expectantly longing for God to act. And friends, it seems to me that we are in precisely the same situation. If you are a Christian here this morning, God has promised to keep you safe through the coming storm of judgment and let you step foot into his new world. That is God's promise to you in Christ. And yet that climax is still in the future. The thing we are waiting for, the thing we are longing for is still yet to come. And like Noah, we are waiting. And like Noah, we are faced with tough conditions as we wait. We might not be confined to a boat with thousands of animals and a few in-laws. But we are faced with living in a broken world. A dying world. A hostile world where conditions are tough. All sorts of struggles that we face day by day. Whether it is fears about our health or that of those who are near and dear to us. And it weighs us down. Or perhaps you are here this morning and you've come from a home where your marriage is struggling or your children are rebelling. And it weighs you down. Or you are going to go into work tomorrow knowing that you're not going to earn enough to pay the bills and feed the children. And it weighs you down. Or you're finding life increasingly tough because you are the only Christian in your family or your workplace. And all around you, people are mocking your faith. Or those close to you, maybe your spouse or your children or your parents, have rejected Jesus and you are overwhelmed with sadness because of it. Day by day, we have these painful reminders that life is one long struggle. And sometimes it feels hard just to keep going, to keep the faith. Friends, the Bible calls us to endure. The Christian life is an endurance test. God tells us the wait will be long and hard going. But the Bible also tells us that God's new world is on its way. And just as God remembered Noah, God remembers you and me. We are on his mind. When heaven seems silent, when life seems nothing more than survival, God is still remembering us. And God is still bringing us towards the day when his new world arrives. And like Noah, we are called to endure expectantly. We're not to endure out of a vain hope. We endure with expectance. Why? Well, I think Noah points us to two reasons why we endure expectantly. There were two encouragements that Noah had which encourage us or motivate us to endure with expectance. We endure expectantly first because God's new world is sure to happen. 
It is sure to come. It is certain. It is sure because God has promised it will happen. Noah had nothing to go on apart from the bare word of God. And if nothing else, Noah's patient waiting encourages us to simply take God at his word. Even if it means a long, long wait. God will bring us to his new world. Did you notice that as Moses describes the wait in in Genesis 8 and, and the eventual emergence into the new world, he is very, very precise. Did you notice that? We're told the exact days and months on which things happened. The exact day, verse 4, that the ark came to rest on the mountain. The exact day, verse 13, that the water had dried up. And in just the same way, God has set a date in his diary when his son, our Lord Jesus, will return to judge the world and usher in his new world order. The date is set immovably in God's divine diary. Some of you have been into our house and seen our family planner on the wall in the hallway. It's a big blackboard, and every uh, family member has their own colour chalk pen. It's the only way we can possibly be organised if everything is written on there in the appropriate colours. But there are some times when both Beth and I make plans, and we go to put it on the wall planner and realise that we've created a clash. And almost invariably, we will debate which one of us made the mistake, and almost invariably, she will be right. But there is no clash in God's diary. He will not be making alternative arrangements. The date is immovably set in God's divine diary. It will happen. It is sure. Uh, Jesus, remember, told his disciples that only the Father knows when that date is. We're told it will be totally unexpected. It will come suddenly. But it will happen because God has put a date in his diary. It's been a long wait. And it could be a while longer. Yes, there are people who scoff and mock and doubt, but the New Testament even tells us to expect that. Two bit of chapter 3 tells us scoffers will come and they will say, where is this coming he promised? But it does not change the fact that Jesus is coming. God has put the date in his diary and it is sure to happen. And in God's mercy, he's giving us signs that it will happen. He's giving us signs, pointers to the fact that it is going to come soon. Signs that remind us that his new world is on its way. In Matthew 24, Jesus described some of the signs of the times. Signs that his return is is getting closer. And it's interesting, in that chapter, Jesus links his return to the account of Noah. It's been interesting this past week to read Genesis 8 in the light of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. We're familiar, aren't we, with Noah sending out first a raven and then a dove to see whether the floodwaters have receded enough. What is he doing? He's looking for signs. He's looking for signs that the judgment is over, that the new world is ready. And over the course of a couple of weeks, he gradually gets the signs he's hoping for. Indicators the world is drying up. Indicators that the new world is here. And in the same way, as we wait 
As we endure expectantly in this world, there are signs all around us that the end is drawing near, that the new world is coming. What sort of signs did Jesus describe in Matthew 24? He said there will be deceivers, there will be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and persecution and increase of wickedness. Now, in and of themselves, those things are horrible, ugly things. And in a sense, they, they've always been there. Even, even in Jesus' day, they were, they were happening, just as they're present today. But they are getting more frequent. They are getting more marked. The 20th century, for example, contained more wars than the entire history of humanity before it. The wickedness of killing unborn babies in the womb is increasing. There are signs, signs that this world is broken and dying, signs that we need a new world. We're faced with one right at the moment, and the fear and the panic that is going on all around us, it is a sign this world is broken. It is a sign that there is a new world on its way. Reminders that God's new world is coming. It's been 2,000 years so far. We do not know how many more years it will be, but there are signs it's on its way. Every time there is a war or a rumor of a war, every time there is a famine or an earthquake or a disease, every time we are overwhelmed by the increase in the wickedness we see around us, yes, we should be heartbroken, but we should also see that as a reminder. A reminder that God's new world is coming. We can endure expectantly because it is sure to happen. And there are signs it's coming. Second, I think Noah is encouraged. And we can be encouraged to endure expectantly because God's new world will be spectacular. It is worth the wait. Noah had to wait a long time in the ark, but then on God's appointed day, he and his family come out and they step foot inside into God's new world, and it is spectacular. When Neil Armstrong became the first man to step onto the moon, he said those famous words, didn't he? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. What an extraordinary experience it must have been for him to be the first person to set foot on the moon's surface, untouched until that point. Noah's experience must have been very similar setting foot on a renewed earth. It must have been very eerie, mustn't it? To step out of the ark knowing that there was nothing else on the face of this earth. Nobody else. God's recreated world. The old world had been washed away in judgment. The new world was here. But Noah stepping foot onto that new world, that recreated world is nothing compared to what we will experience when we step into God's new world. His perfectly created, recreated world. Just think for for a moment about that day. The day you will set foot into God's new world. What a day it will be. The judgment will have burned away any remnant of sin and evil. And unlike the the recreated world of Noah's day, sin will be gone forever. Sin was still there in Noah's day because he and his family had sinful hearts. But in God's new world, that is surely coming. Sin will be gone forever. It will be spectacular. 
it is worth the wait. It will be breathtakingly beautiful. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these are the things God has prepared for those who love him. Consider for a moment the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Perhaps a view of glorious mountains or a dazzling ocean. Maybe the vastness of the night sky or the beauty of a newborn baby. Consider the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. That is nothing. Nothing compared to the spectacular beauty of God's new world. Our minds cannot even begin to conceive how beautiful it will be. This present world will give way to glory. It will be this world, this earth, renewed, restored, recreated. And in his pres- this present creation, God has given us little glimpses of the beauty of the world to come. Every caterpillar that becomes a butterfly, every seed that becomes a flower, every dark winter that becomes a bright spring, glimpses of what this world will one day become. And Jesus, in his own resurrection body, gives us a glimpse of the hope that is ours in that new world, a bodily resurrection, because he has gone before us. And he offers life in God's new world, where death and decay and sin and sickness and fear and failure will be gone forever. It is worth waiting for, because it will be spectacular. Noah challenges us. He calls us to set our hearts on the world that is to come. Not to live with our heads so much in the clouds that we're of no earthly use. Doesn't doesn't mean that at all. But Noah does call us to orient our hearts, our desires, our longing towards God's new world that is coming. Do you notice Noah's first thought as he steps foot into God's new world is to worship with his burnt offering. And so our response ought to be to fall before him in praise and adoration, to give ourselves to him, to live for the world to come. God's new world is coming. And Genesis 8 calls us to endure expectantly because it is sure to come and it will be spectacular. We cannot grasp how spectacular it will be. But as we move into chapter 9, we we get some clues. And it leads us not only to endure expectantly, but to expect enjoyment. Because that is how spectacular, how worth waiting for God's new world is. It is a world full of absolute enjoyment. We can expect enjoyment in God's new world. You see, after Noah and his family step off the ark into the new world, God gives Noah a covenant. Now, a covenant is is an arrangement that governs a relationship. And the Bible essentially is the story of God's covenant with humanity. It is the story of how God made arrangements for humanity to have a relationship with him, despite our sin. This is the first covenant in the Bible. God later makes covenants with Abraham and with Israel, his people, through Moses, with King David. We know, of course, that he makes a new covenant with us in the blood of his son. The Bible is the story of God's covenant with humanity. God makes arrangements so that we can enjoy a relationship with him that by rights we do not deserve. Now, this covenant with Noah is a gift of God's grace, his kindness. It shows him, I'm not done with you yet. 
Because although Noah was stepping out into a recreated world, he and his family were still sinful. They still needed a way for them to come before God. And so God gives this covenant as the arrangement whereby they can enjoy life in this new world. And what is pictured in this covenant points us forward to God's new world that is coming, in which we can expect supreme enjoyment. Because in this covenant with Noah, God does two things. The first thing he does is he limits the threats to human flourishing. He repeats the blessing he'd given to Adam and Eve, the blessing of multiplying and filling the earth. God wants humanity to flourish, and he puts in place what is needed for that to happen. Now, verse 2 suggests that before the flood, um, there had been such hostility between humans and animals that animals had been overstepping the mark and killing humans. But here in this covenant, God curbs the impact. Animals will live in fear and dread of humans. And animals, in fact, are given into your hands for food. God gives permission for humans to eat meat. That is for our flourishing. Although there may be many, many people who choose not to eat meat, not to eat meat for all kinds of good reasons, God permits us to do so. It is part of his recreation blessing. What he does forbid is to eat meat that still has its lifeblood in it. So we're not to be like animals and eat animals while they're still alive. That's prohibited in verse 4. What God is doing is establishing the value of blood. He's doing so that that we might begin to grasp the significance of what would happen when Jesus shed his blood for us. But this covenant with Noah also establishes the value of human life. Now, there are many Christians who think that this covenant demands the death penalty for murder. And what I don't think that view appreciates is the difference between... um, the difference between society in ancient Israel and modern nation-states. The rules surrounding the death penalty in ancient Israel were very strict. It ensured there were no miscarriages of justice. So I don't think we're to read that into this covenant, but what God is doing is enshrining the value of human life. We're made in the image of God, and God wants us to flourish. So he puts in place fundamental laws Fundamental laws to protect life, to enable us to flourish. God gives Noah this covenant in which he curbs the impact, he limits the threats to human flourishing. The second thing God does in this covenant is he puts a limit on his own judgment. He promises that he will never again destroy the world with a flood. That's the sign of the rainbow, isn't it? The promise of God, a reminder of God's patience. He doesn't pledge never to judge the world again, full stop. That will come, not with a, not with a flood, but with fire. But in his mercy, he does put a limit on his judgment. By rights, God, God could just shut the world down. But he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, he is wonderfully patient. He promises to Noah and to the world that he will hold off judgment. This, the Bible says, is the day of God's patience. Today is a gift of God's patience to you if you have not yet come to trust in Jesus. God has held off judgment 
so that you can have this opportunity today to come to him. God has put a limit on his own judgment. And as Noah stepped out into this new world, God gave this covenant that that limits the threats to human flourishing and limits his own judgment. Those limits were necessary. Because as wonderful as this new world was that Noah stepped into, it was still fallen. But in this covenant with Noah, we're pointed forward to a day when life will finally be what God intended. A day when those limits will no longer be needed. Because in the new world that is coming, there will be no hindrance to human flourishing. There will be no hindrance to our enjoyment of life. There will be no need to limit those threats because there will be no threats. There will be a perfectly restored harmony. Isaiah the prophet foresees the day when the the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the infant will play near the cobra's den. They will neither harm nor destroy. There will be perfect harmony throughout the entirety of the new creation. There will be no threats to limit. And there will need to be no limit to God's judgment because there will be no judgment. There will be nothing left to judge. There will be nothing sinful that needs to be judged. We cannot imagine what that will be like, but that is God's promise for those who belong to Jesus. As we draw to a close, just one final note about the rainbow. The rainbow here in Genesis 9 is not just a reminder of God's patience. It's also a glimpse of God's presence. Because in the books of Ezekiel and Revelation, we come across rainbows again, and they surround the very throne of God. And so you see, it's as if God is giving Noah just a glimpse, just a glimpse of his heavenly glory in what is still a fallen world. But in the world to come, that glory will be our joy, our experience forever. It's just a glimpse here in this rainbow covenant of what life will be like in the world to come. It will be life in the presence of God. Life before the rainbow encircled throne of God. That is what we will enjoy. That is perfect enjoyment that is offered to us in Jesus Christ, the life giver. That is life in all its fullness. Eternity will be a perfectly restored relationship with the God who created the universe. Life in his presence. That is what Noah just had a tiny glimpse of. It is what you and I can look forward to in God's new world. May God give us a longing for that day, that future, that hope. This is the life that Jesus offers in the world to come. So let's endure expectantly. Let's expect enjoyment in God's new world. Lord, haste the day. Decay is slain by glory, the day you call your sons and daughters home. We're going to sing. We're going to sing to God's praise. And Eddie and the band are going to lead us.